Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Groundwork Podcast. I am your host, Kate Cavanaugh, and it is such a pleasure to be here with you today. I want to dive right into talking about part two, exploring the nervous system and how can we can foster deeper connections by beginning to heal our own nervous systems with our amazing guest, Irene Lyon. Now, I want to share a little bit about my own journey with the nervous system, and this is something that I've wanted to walk a little bit of a tightrope around. I really believe that one of the benefits of the medium of podcasting is sharing stories around these themes of mind, body, and soil that begin to bring us back to ourselves, back to the land, and back home in in some sort of cosmic way. And I've been reticent to share too much of my own story because I don't want that to muddy the waters. And as we embark on talking about the nervous system, I feel like in order for you to really connect with this, I want to share a piece of my own story so that you can understand why my curiosity has led me to talking about the nervous system. I grew up in a household where my nervous system got set up in ways that were not beneficial to me. And I think that's the sort of diplomatic way of saying this. And I want to be kind here, right? When we reflect on our childhoods, this can be a space where it's really easy to point fingers and blame and really believe that by and large, our parents were doing the best that they could. And I know that most of us are operating in a space in the world where we are doing the best that we can. But I didn't have a great setup for childhood. And when Irene and I talk about this space where chronic illness occurs in the nervous system, it is really the intersection of when our bodies are in fight or flight for a prolonged period of time. And then that freeze response comes up to meet it because we can't stay in fight or flight. And we kind of get caught pressing the gas and pressing the brakes fully at the same time. And in this space, your body is more likely to develop chronic illness. And so there were times in my childhood where I felt very stuck, very trapped, and very alone, and also very fearful and frozen. And these were things that defined my early experiences and my journey. And, you know, I really over the last couple of years, have 
questioned how we get out of this space of looking, let me, and let me use I statements here. And I think that this is really important that I didn't want to look at my childhood and say, well, I'm having this response now as an adult, whether I'm getting stuck in this anxiety response or in this freeze response. And it's because of these experiences that I have had in childhood that inform the way that I respond now. And I was getting stuck sort of telling myself that. And then this question came on for me of, well, how can I take ownership and have some autonomy? Okay, this is what happened to me in the past, but I am now a fully sovereign adult and I can make choices that can begin to shift these patterns for me. The same way that, right, and I find this this was an easier entry point for me was with food. That when I was looking to heal my chronic illness and I began to take some control over what I was eating and to experience some autonomy and say, oh, you know, sugar and gluten and nightshades don't make my body feel good. And I want my body to really feel good. And so I began to remove those and just choice by choice, build a different pattern in my body. And that's really what's brought me so far on my healing journey. So I've suffered with chronic illness for the last 15 years. I have never been healthier than I am right now speaking with you. And so I wanted to take that same tact with the nervous system. How are my responses that are ingrained in my nervous system that feel that feel really overwhelming and that are causing me so much anxiety, how can I begin to shift those? And and they're small, right? Like this is this is a dial, not a switch, and sometimes we're just turning it just just the tiniest amount. And I really believe that this is when Irene's work found me. And I had done a lot of trauma work and some somatic experiencing and and worked to heal some of these aspects. But Irene's work is really unique. And it really speaks to me because I'm still one of those kids that wants to know why with everything. And she gives you this beautiful foundation for understanding the physiological and biological reasoning behind what's happening inside of your nervous system and just how the simple practices that she teaches you are going to give you this toolbox. And I want to tease something out here. When I say simple practices, just because they're simple doesn't mean they're easy. They're very simple concepts, simple practices to apply, but we are applying them to complex humans with complex traumas. And so that is where Simple does not necessarily equate to easy, but it is very approachable and accessible. And I embarked on her 21-day nervous system tune-up, and as somebody who's done a lot of work in this space, was really surprised at how much it began to shift and change for me and bring me back to a state of awareness as somebody who is often getting stuck in what I call future tripping. Maybe you're familiar with this too. And so if that resonates with you and you want to embark on a journey with Irene, she has several incredible programs. And one of them is the 21-day nervous system tune-up that I did. She also has her 
12-week deep dive into the nervous system, Smart Body, Smart Mind, coming up this September, where you enter this container with her and others, and you begin to embark on this work. And then you are invited, once you purchase Smart Body, Smart Mind, you can come back every time she offers this course, which she offers every year and dive into deeper layers of healing because this is such a lifelong journey. In addition to that, she also has the essentials for nervous system health and healing coming up. If you want just a little taste of her work and you want to see what some of these tools are going to look like and just get comfortable with where she's coming from. And so this is, this is coming up September 10th through the 13th and is kind of an on-ramp into deciding whether or not you want to do some of her other courses. And I have links to all of those below. And I'll say what I said last time. I have become an affiliate for her courses. And that's because the 21-Day Nervous System tune-up was so incredible for me. I would never... I mean, in full transparency, I would never come to you with something that I have not personally used and benefited from. And so links are in there and benefits this podcast. If you decide that you want to embark on this work with Irene, click through and help support the podcast through that. There's this sort of aspect of reciprocity there. Other than that, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for embarking on this journey of healing land and bodies together. I really believe that when we begin to heal the individual, whether that's an individual person, an individual acre of land, an individual hectare of forest, that we begin to heal the collective. And I know that this is a little bit of an esoteric idea, but it, and it is to me too, but it's an important one that this work that we're doing to peel back the layers, to understand this sort of unseen world behind the veil, whether that's beneath the soil and the soil food web and these mycelial networks that extend over great distances, or whether it's peeling back the inner workings of our brain and the complex way that we get set up as human beings and that we, the way that we relate to ourselves, to others, and to our environment. And we're all on this journey together in some component. And I really thank you for sharing my curiosity about these guests. I don't want to take up any more of your time. If this episode resonates with you and you want to share it with a friend or a family member and dive a little bit deeper into nervous system work, please, please check out Irene. She is just a force of nature and I am in love with her work. So without further ado, Irene Lyon. Let's just dive right in. And I think we we had had this beautiful conversation and I actually, I just went back and listened to it today just to remind myself of what we had talked about. And we had both talked about that there was this piece that we wanted to dive a little bit deeper into, which is this connection with chronic illness and disease, which is at epidemic levels right now here in the United States. And I actually, I pulled a couple of statistics because mm-hmm. I was curious yeah, and, and wanted to kind of dive into this. And so in 1965, 4% of Americans had been diagnosed with a chronic illness. And you compare that to 46% of children today, 
Over 51% of adults have one chronic illness and over a quarter are suffering from two or more. Yeah. Here in America. And I want to, I want to be specific about that. And oh, I'm sure it's the same here in Canada. Yeah. And I'm, I know it's the same in Australia and Europe's probably a little different, but probably similar in the UK, but yes, it's good for you. That's, that's like, that's a hit to look up those stats. Yeah, it is. But I think it's important to sort of connect it and it connects into this place, at least here in the U.S. In 2020, uh, healthcare spending hit $3.8 trillion. So I'm sure that's well on its way to $4 trillion. And this is really a sick care system. And I think one of my favorite ways of looking at dis-ease is that disease is really a state of dis-ease. It's that point in time at which we're not at ease with our own bodies. And so I know that we both wanted to dive back into this, but I thought maybe first we should dive into a little bit about how how our nervous system gets set in infancy, even in utero, and and how that really sets the tone for the rest of our development. Mm-hmm. Well, the the statistics you just mentioned are interesting because there's a piece of research, and I'm not sure if we talked about this on our first chat, but the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. I think we mentioned it very briefly. Okay. So I'm going to start with that because then that segues well into... So I can't name off the statistics from that study other than to say that what they found is that there is an unequivocal... Equivocal, highly statistically significant, all the things that would make like a bunch of people go, Oh my God, there is something really important here. The connection between early, they call it early adversity, but really it's early stress, like consistent chronic stress. We could say trauma, we could say abuse, but it isn't always that. And I'll speak to that in a second. But when we are little and we have a lot of uncertainty and a lot of scary stuff going around us or happening to us, they found that later in life, those that have more adversity were more likely to have what they would call illness, chronic illness, adult illness. And the list is long, Kate. It's not just like one thing. It's like heart disease, hypertension, autoimmune, certain cancers, addiction, rheumatoid arthritis, every single thing that we struggle with in this, this healthcare sick care system that you mentioned, you know, metabolic syndrome, all those things. And I remember reading, um, I think it was in the book scared sick, which is written by Robin, Robin Carmores. And I can never remember the co-author, sorry, co-author, but scared. <laughs> Look at we'll, we'll have a link to it. <laughs> uh, so scared sick in it, it talks about this study and it's actually probably one of the best written. I, I don't like to say layman, but it, it's written for a person who doesn't understand science. And at one point in the book, um, I still remember the page, <laughs> the, one of the key members of the CDC, this was like ages ago, his name was Robert. And, uh, he looked at this research and apparently he started to cry because he's like, if this is accurate, then things like smoking, drinking, all the things that we think are really causing the cancers and the heart diseases, 
it's not that it's this, and it's this underlying root cause that's causing the excessive tobacco consumption, the excessive nicotine or sorry, alcohol consumption. I say excessive because tobacco can be used ceremonially very, very in a healthy way, just as having a nice glass of red wine with your steak isn't going to kill you. Right. It's the excess. Yes. And I, I just, I even think about it now and I, I get shivers and I think, man, to be in that position with the CDC and to get this research on your desk and go, and, and there was no ifs, ands, or buts. There was so much data. It was a massive study. Oh, and huge. I think, I, I think it was Dr. Felitti, is that his yep, name? That, that that pioneered it. And I, I loved this term. I was watching a video about this today. The largest study you've never heard of. Yes. Because it was massive with massive implications. Yes. And the interest, like I've got whole body shivers as we're talking about this, because this began to be founded in like the late eighties, but it wasn't on purpose. So what Felitti was doing, he was in Southern California, I think it was La Jolla, and they were doing interventions, healthy lifestyle interventions with folks who were very much overweight. They would even consider them morbidly obese and they were having massive results. And it was like multi-prong. It wasn't just diet or it was diet, exercise, counseling, connection, all the things, which was quite groundbreaking for the eighties really. And it was through the health insurance company in the States, which I think is called the Kaiser Permanente, which is a large insurance. I'm not sure how it works in the United States, but they had a pool of people whom they classified as, as middle-class. They classified them as white. You know, that's how it was classified. And it was something like, it was thousands of people, Kate. And what happened was that these people were getting healthier. They were losing weight, like hundreds of pounds And then people just started to like disappear and they couldn't find them again. Like they, they're trying to follow up and like, they just poof gone and a long story short, and I'm sure I'm missing some very important pieces, but when they finally did track down some of these individuals, they started to ask questions about their history. And a lot, if not most of these people had had abuse, adversities, neglect, Uh, like all the things that are now known as the ACE score. There's a 10 point scale of did these things happen to you? And it was something like 63% ish, two thirds of the people had had like four or more out of this 10. And it was like, you were hit, you were verbally abused. You didn't feel like you were loved. A parent was an alcoholic or addicted. A parent was incarcerated. A parent, you know, all those sorts of things. But what is interesting is that that's, we know that's neglect and abuse, but then there's all sorts of other things that aren't considered that, that still impact humans. So to to kind of backstep, when he found this, he was like, everyone is going to want to know this because this is going to heal our humanity if we work at figuring out childhood abuse and neglect. I have chills right now thinking about (sighs) how he thought about that. (laughs) Yeah. And actually there's a great video. um, It's called a tribute to Vincent Felitti. It's about 18 minutes long. I highly recommend um, people watch it because you can see his absolute um, frustration. And also you have to have a bit of humor when you're in this work, because if you don't, you, you quit, 
you, you have to kind of put some lightness to it. And it's like, why is no one like, this is insane Like that we should be talking about this. Now there are some doctors who know about this. There are some initiatives that are now asking about a person's history, early history, but we're just so far away from what we could be doing with it. And even uh, Gabor Mate, who's quite well known in this world, he has, there was a talk he gave, I'm not sure if it was a talk or reading, not important, but he remembers presenting this research to a group of physicians at some conference. And as he started to show the data in the room, people started leaving. (laughs) They started clearing their throats, which was like a sign of sympathetic arousal. And after he had finished, you know, sort of sharing the overall conclusions of this ACE study, there was silence in the audience, not one question. Usually when, you know, you're in a, a, a room with colleagues, there's a little bit of, you know, sparring, like that can't be because this was done this way and that, no, there's no way that because of this silence. Oh, I I don't even know what to say. I'm kind of my jaw is on the floor right now, imagining this and what's going on in the nervous systems of those in the audience that are watching Gabor Monte talk about this. What I sense is going on is they all see that it's absolutely accurate and factual to the point where you can't, it's not even about, is this true? It's true. And then everyone has their own experience and everyone then starts to play in their mind is this why my father did this? Is this why my mother is sick? Is this why I'm sick? Is this why I have a problem drinking? Is this why my kids are so screwed up because I da 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 da? And it just, it's so massive that to actually accept this and embrace this by the entire medical community would mean that there needs to be a rewriting of how we see illness. And illness, not like a broken bone, but like these chronic illnesses that have just skyrocketed in the last little bit. Skyrocketed. I mean, again, you know, here in the U.S., 25% of people have two or more. And I mean, one in two people has a chronic illness. And yeah. this is... yeah. And this is only increasing. When we look at these graphs of chronic disease throughout westernized world, we just see it on one of these these scary curves. A hundred percent. And, you know, I, I know that you, as I, we see things all, you know, all the factors. So there's the food supply, there's the chemicals, there's our indoor lifestyle, all that circadian biology stuff. That is a full on. Yes. That is definitely contributing to that. And what I've found is that when we aren't in good regulation with our nervous system, we might not even know that we are supposed to go outside we might not even know that we should consider and think twice about eating something that's been sitting in our cupboard for 10 years. We might not even consider that we shouldn't, you know, put stuff in our body before really asking, should I be taking this? And I I don't mean like crazy pharmaceutical, like like Tylenol, you know, these things that we're now starting to see are really bad for us. Yes. So, um, there's, there's these multidimensional pieces, but even Mate has said, we don't need any more research to figure out the cause of cancer, the cause of heart disease. Yeah. There's some genetic things at play that of course, but the bulk of this spike is so traced back to how, and this goes back to your question, how little ones were treated when they were young. 
were they treated well when they were young? Did their parents even know what that meant? And while I know there are good people out there that do know how to attune and do those things, I'm going to wage a guess, Kate, that most of those uh, of us living in Western world, we don't know. Like we don't, we just, the, the fear that people have when they hold a baby, like I, I can't, I can't, I don't want to hurt it. I don't want to break it. I don't know what to do. That's really messed up. Yeah. We're talking about the most innate thing that we do as humans, which is to rear our young. But something you said earlier, like we're missing all these cues, whether they're cues to go outside or what we're actually hungry for, what our body is actually asking for. And there's so much of a disconnect. Yeah. And that, to go back to that question you had, what happens you know, with the nervous system when we're, we're born. So if we, you know, put the eight, so the eighth study, like that's just in some ways it's good that we have it. It's very good. And it's also almost on the level of infuriating that it's so tough to get that into the establishment, but you know, things take time. And my hope is that more and more people start to learn about it and, and get that this is a real thing. So when we're born, if we think about from coming out of mama, we don't have all of our pieces working. And and you know this, you know, we know this. And even on your farm, the little ones that come out of, of the animals and mammals, they're still pretty helpless, but they're, they have a little bit more capacity than a human baby does. Yes. And they can walk and I'm yes. sure that they're nervous. They have a little bit more nervous system function online as yes. a function of being largely prey animals and needing to be able to move quickly. However, I notice a lot of attunement happening and a lot of looking to mom for how to react, looking to mom for comfort. I see a lot of on-demand nursing. Of course. I see a lot of starting to set that bond in those patterns and and patterning after mother. And I think any any farmer will tell you you call bad mothers because we 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 pattern there's some there's some patterning that happens. Uh-huh. Exactly. And as harsh as this sounds, if you have a litter of whatever type of mammal if one isn't strong enough, they're going to die. It's yes. just not going to happen. It's just, it's just what happens. It's just what happens. And because of this uh, conundrum, then if we go to the human, you know, I think modern medicine is wonderful. And then I also know that there is the trauma when a little one is not full term and we, we keep them alive. I am grateful for that because my husband was a preemie. So I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. No, but there is a whole, there is something that happens that is completely breaking from the pattern of how our, how we relate to our mothers and how we are touched and held and how that sets us up. Exactly. So when we come out, let's just say we have a full-term human baby. We'll just for sake of purposes. At that point, the lungs are working, the digestion's working, you know, poop and peeing, they, they want to feed, um, right. They can hear things, you know, not in, in a differentiated way, but they can light and all these sorts of things, but a part of the nervous system that is not fully cooked. If we want to use that word fully baked 
is um, this social engagement nervous system and a portion of the nervous system that soothes us, that self-soothes us, which is the social engagement nervous system. It's, it's a portion of the parasympathetic called the ventral aspect of the vagus nerve. Details aren't important right now other than to know that we need that to be cultivated through interaction with another. It doesn't have to be our mother, you know, because mamas die sometimes. And it could be a father, a nanny, whomever. But you need that connection, that co-regulation, that attunement, that that listening so that baby starts to learn about their responses and as they're connected with, and as they're sued when they're hungry or, or cold or too hot, right? They go, ah, oh, okay. Okay. And each time there's that little spark of connection that's laying down what we could call wiring for good, healthy self-regulation. But we don't get that without that, that yummy, good connection. Now, Touch is another part, important one, you know, how we're touched, how we're held, because there can be such a well-meaning mother who loves her baby so much and she wants this so badly. But when she touches the little one, she's scared in her hands. And it's not because she thinks she's scared. It's her old stuff. It's her rigidity, her freeze, or her lack of um, containment. It can be the other way. She can be very collapsed without that, that, you know, like if you, again, your farm, it's so great. You know, you hold an animal that's all jiggly. You can't just be soft with it. You need to hold them firmly, you know, and also soothe them at the same time with like your pinky finger, right? Like it's how you, you have to be firm. So when a little human is coming out and if mama mama's messaging isn't crisp and clear and she's struggling unconsciously, it's, it's so we can't measure this stuff, Kate, but it's like, it transfers a message that something's not right. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And I actually want to relate this back to farming in a way that I think actually, curiously enough, more people might be familiar with, Yeah, which is when we're working with horses, people will often tell you that you need to be regulated and you need to find grounding before you approach horses because they're very sensitive creatures and they can pick up on the minutia of what you're feeling and how your nervous system is responding. And I think that, you know, we understand this in the animal world and to apply this then to infancy. And I think that this is why we're seeing the rise of attachment parenting where, where kids are being attended to and they're sleeping co-regulated where they're not having these. And we're starting to measure some of these things, seeing that, that sleeping away from mom in early infancy causes spikes in cortisol. A hundred percent. Cause again, a little, you know, a mother who's just birthed a litter of, of piglets, as I know I've seen in your stories, yeah. she's not going to let those little ones sleep in a, their own room with the door closed and all the lights locked. Like they're with her yes, all the time. And that's where that on-demand feeding occurs. So yeah, that is, you know, it's, we've just, it, we've been so trained that we're this very different kind of being. And we are, this is where it's so interesting. The human is 
unique, but we still have mammalian physiology. As I say this over and over again, and we need to treat humans like the animal that we are with the understanding that, yeah, we also have, as we are learning soul and uniqueness and intelligence, but that beginning foundational, it's really the first three years. I, in some ways to me, I think the first four to five years are critical. And of course in utero, like just, let's just get that regulation on board. Let's get that little human being cool and knowing that they can be touched with certainty and that their body responses aren't to be shunned or, um, ridiculed, you know, the, the classic changing diapers and the mother making a funny face at how stinky it is. And like, is as subtle as that might seem that sends an energy wave that sends a field of your your defecation and your urination and your whatever it might be, I'm not liking it, you know? And one, I wouldn't say that that is abuse because that isn't, but it's one of those little drops in the bucket that make it such that we as humans start to feel something's not right. Like my bodily processes aren't okay. You know, I'm hungry. Why am I not being fed? Why am I being, why am I being put in a room and trained to eat at certain times, which happens. And these are the, these are the functions that are present in infancy. I think to relate this back to something you said, we come, our digestive system is one of the, and our respiratory system are the two things that are really on board. And so these little these little things that we do and, and the way that we perceive human faces. And I also want to bring this back to, you know, you talk about humans having a higher brain and how that kind of, that kind of shifts our perception, but that mammalian biology is millions and millions of years in the making. And that higher brain has only been around for a fraction of that time and so this hardwiring is super vital and these little these little cracks in those foundations they can really add up they add up and we're seeing it and i think genetics gets too much attention <laughs> and and you know some things aren't going to change you have red hair i have brown hair unless we dye that it's not like that's just how we are you know it's going to grow back that color And there's been so much, you know, if I think about the kids who are struggling, I've had quite a few times, uh, parents, not recently, because I haven't been in private practice for a while, call me up, email me. I need you to figure out what's going on with my kid, my teenager. And I made the mistake, Kate, of doing some of that work in that I just wanted to help, but then I would see the dynamic with the parents. And it's like, I can help that kid when they're with me, if I can get in and and connect with them, which often happened, but then they go back into their toxic environment, or maybe it's not even toxic. It's just that mom or dad has no clue that they have dysregulation and just their actions and way of talking is disrupting that little, that little one that is still developing. So the one thing because you know, there's a positive here (laughs) is what I've seen is that, so let's just say one doesn't get the good regulation and wiring when they're zero to three years old. 
And a person now knows that through my education and all the education that my peers are doing. And they're like, oh my goodness, this is why. And we can talk about the mechanics of how that chronic illness ensues in a second. It's like, this is why I have these things. I want to, I want to fix this. And so the good news is we can retrain this as adults, but what's even cool for all the parents is that if you work on yourself and you don't put it upon the kid or the teenager, true with teenagers too, you just do the work on yourself. You don't post it on Instagram. You don't tell your, your family what you're doing other than I'm, I'm learning something. I need an hour to myself every day or whatever. Like that is, you will start to see, and I've heard enough of these stories through my students, the children start to change, but it's not because they're doing the work. It's because the primary caregiver is doing the work and how their system is shifting is felt. We could call it energetically. We could call it psychically. It doesn't matter. Every single action that is now different in that adult is being felt by the little one who is just that much more pure and connected because they're younger. I want to, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. As you were talking, there are two things I want to mention. And the first is epigenetics. And we know that 98% plus of our genetics are not fixed. And it's, you know, genetics load the gun, environment pulls the trigger. You got it. And so our environment is also this social engagement and how we're relating with the family members around us. But the second piece that I can't help but wonder about is in a lot of ways, we're inheriting aspects of our nervous system. It's being passed down through generations. And when we talk about intergenerational trauma, we are sort of giving unintentionally, and I, I, I want to remind any parents that are listening to this, that this is, this is not intentional, that we are passing down this, this sort of broken nervous, this, I don't want to say broken, this, this nervous system that might I'm not okay. be developed. Are you? <laughs> I'm okay with the word broken. Things are broken right now. I think it, it's, and I say that because trying to, find a word that's a little less intense isn't always the best. It's like, we we're really, I mean, as a, as a general rule, things are really broken, but what you were saying about the, the transmission over generations is true. And people will say, well, it just runs in the family. This is just in the family. And, and I have, I know that yes, there, there will be genetic elements that are expressed, but they are expressed as a result, as we know, through the nurturing, the environment. And cause there's a lot of people that end up with sicknesses that aren't genetic. And then they wonder where did these come from? Right. But, and there are many sicknesses for which we cannot find, and there may not be a genetic component, no. but it runs in families. It runs in the family. And it's kind of an interesting one. Um, I'm going to write down a note so I don't forget. <laughs> um, remind me to talk about fawning. But what occurs when you're this little person, you are essentially borrowing your primary caregiver's system. You're borrowing their parasympathetic ventral vagus to figure out how to be in the world. But the kid doesn't say, I don't like the way mom's dealing with this. So I'm going to do it a different way. All they know is when I feel hungry and I have this cry, I get the message 
hunger isn't being attended to right now. So I better shut down. Right. And so that's like one fraction of the life of an infant and a toddler learning how to be with their body. So they, they literally co-op, they borrow whatever nervous system is given to them by the bows in their environment. But then what makes it even more tricky, Kate, is that if you have a mom and maybe a dad and maybe a grandma, and then you go to daycare, you're having all these different, (laughs) these different types of nervous systems. And maybe grandma is actually quite whatever she's like regulated. And you're like, Oh, so good. Grandma's so good. And then I have to go back home tonight. What, what? And then there's the screaming and I don't want to leave. And we see this in, in many ways, subtly when people, when little ones, obviously not two years old, but say five-year-old, they go to school for the first time and they don't want to leave. They don't want to go home or they don't want to leave their friend's house because it's that much safer and the parents actually attuned to them. So if you, you see this thing is that we're being bombarded by all these different types of nervous systems because the human has been raised in so many different ways, unlike the piglets and the horses and the cows and the deer. And so we have this conundrum where it really is enough to drive a person crazy to wonder where did all of these idiosyncrasies come from? How come when I am in a, in a club that's busy and I'm dancing, I feel so good and safe, but when I'm, you know, by myself at home with one person, I am crawling out of my skin. That doesn't make sense. Or for some people, it could be the other way. They don't want to go to a loud, noisy club. They just want to be at home alone with one person. So here we have um, this human being, and I say that kind of the context of all of us, that has no operating system that's equal. And we're trying to figure out right now in this year, 2022, how to help heal the human system with all these different methodologies and treatments and therapies that have been developed over the years. And they're all wonderful in their own way. And then for some, these things work. And for other people, these things work. But what's interesting as I found through my work is if we actually teach the adult human who knows they want to figure this out and they know they've been pulled in all these different nervous system directions through their upbringing and abuse and all those things, I've actually figured out if we can give that adult what they never got, bearing in mind that we can't bring them back to a baby and reparent them in that way, but let's reteach the adult how to listen to their hunger, how to touch their own skin, not because they want something or something's happening, but just to listen. If we can teach the human who wants to do better and heal the theory. I think, you know, you've been learning my stuff. We actually, I can say this with pretty strong conviction. I don't think we can do the level of rewiring that I've seen as possible without teaching the deep theory because our brain wants to figure out what's going on. And because of all these different avenues that we've been raised through, you have to be prepared for something making no sense. Have you found that a little bit as you've been dabbling with some of this stuff? I think one of the most interesting things, and I was relating this to my husband just today as we were talking about my journey through the 21-day nervous system tune-up and and what I've been experiencing. And one of them is that I, and I think we are all, the human brain is a meaning-making machine. Yep. 
And understanding that why and that educational piece is so foundational to, I think, number one, pulling the lever of curiosity, which I think is part of what engages us in, in any work. And number two, there is just recognizing, okay, this is part of how I got here. And this is what's going on at a physiological, biological level inside my body. And these are the systems that are involved, which gives me sort of a, a lens inside myself where I can really see what might be happening. And then there's this piece of how to begin to heal. And, you know, we use the word broken earlier. And I remember, and I'm going to, I'm going to share kind of a personal note as a child, I was told that I was irreparably broken, that I would never heal, that I I look at my parents and what their mental health and, and physical health experiences were. And I was told by multiple different Western medical doctors that there was, there was no hope that I was going to be just like them. Wow. And I think one of the reactions I had to that word broken was having been told that. And, and we are incredible plastic beings. And I think part of what I'm seeing in this tune up is that capacity for plasticity. And, and this has come for me at a time when I'm kind of my body, my nervous system. I've been through a couple of things this summer that have been very intense. And, and I've started after years of chronic disease, which are mostly healed. I've really started having more energy and more oomph. And I'm finding myself being able to balance not going into a freeze state. Yeah. That's great to hear. So that's really cool. And your term plasticity, right? This neuroplastic capacity, it's in many ways a a blessing and a curse because that neuroplasticity is also why we do pass along these things. And so in your experience, and I, I, you know, I have, I had doctors when I was a teenager say, you're never going to get rid of this eczema. You were born with it. You're, you're just, you've got asthma and da, 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 da. And trust me, now I realize it had nothing to do with my system. It was the toxins I was being exposed to that was creating this. And that's them. They don't know any other way. Right. And so I do have odd, an odd compassion for doctors that do say that because they really don't know what else to say. And, (laughs) but the thing that's so interesting is that it, you know, there's like, there's all these movies out right now. I don't know if you watch shows, this timelines, these multiple timeline shows that are just like popping up everywhere. Like Russian Mm -hmm. doll. There's another one that just came out with Jamie Lee Curtis, which was so weird. It was a movie, everything all at once, something like that. Anyway, I'm like, why are we interested in these timelines right now? I always think it's interesting when entertainment has a, some predominant themes that come out. And I really think that it's representative of what's percolating in that collective unconscious. A hundred percent. And so, you know, that doctor was right in a timeline where you didn't take charge of yourself and want a different way. Cause this is why offspring of, of, of parents who are unwell 
follow that path, but it's not because they're, that's, that's how it's supposed to be. But for whatever reason, the choices that they've made and the experiences they've had and the, the fortunes and led them to that path. But then, but then you decided at one point and you probably know the moment when there was a shift. Yeah. And that put you on a totally different path. Yes. And that that's plasticity too. Like they're both plasticity because we can shift the system, but it does require something in us to spark and go, I'm not doing that. Yes. Or I'm not going to end up the way you're saying this is going to happen. Yes. And I think that, oh, I mean, first of all, I think through the 21 day nervous system tune up, I have connected with things. I mean, I have been doing trauma work and therapy and a a lot of things over the years, and I have made a lot of progress, Sure, but it is all of the sudden seeing, and they're very simple. It's very simple, but all of the sudden things are clicking into place that haven't in all the years of work I've done. And I actually, I literally lamented this to my husband as I was helping him saw this, this big thing, but that I've done all this work and these are such simple things. But I think within that, I really like this, this double edged idea of plasticity, that plasticity is what got us there and that we can get out. And it takes some desire to get out of that space. And I think it takes belief that we are deserving and that, that can be a really difficult one. And I know that that's something that has come up for me and a belief that it's possible. And I think that oftentimes within our Western medical paradigm, we aren't even being told that a different way is possible, that we have all these chronic illnesses, whether it's metabolic dysfunction or eczema or whatever that may be. And it's okay, well, this is now here for life. And these are the pills. These are the medications that you'll take. And this is your fate. Exactly. The, that diagnosis is an interesting one because for some people, a diagnosis, I just talked to, um, one of my students interviewed her. It'll be up on my site soon. And she has healed lupus, which is a very, you know, in some ways she's like, it's just like all the other things. It's chronic fatigue. It's fibromyalgia. Your gut is all over the place. But what she had said was that she got the diagnosis quite late in life, I think in her thirties. And it started when she was really young as a result of a a trauma and abuse when she was four, but the diagnosis was good for the family so that they could, Oh, you've got this. I see. This is why you don't have energy. This is why you need all this help. But, but what happened and was she didn't attach to it. It's like, okay, this is nicely packaged for my family so they can make sense of this because that's what they understand. But then she was like, and I'm now going to work on this because I don't think my body wants to attack itself. Why would the body want to do that? It's a message. There's something not right. And that actually is a perfect segue to the reason why these chronic illnesses and this dysregulation pops. It's quite simple it's that there is two things happening. One is the body is stuck in a fight and flight energetic. That's the sympathetic nervous system, 
something is not right. I'm freaked out. I'm scared. Get me out of here. I need to fight you off. High, high energy. But we can't stay in that energy 24 seven. We'll go crazy. So we have to then dampen it down with this very intelligent parasympathetic nervous system, a portion of it that is called the dorsal aspect of the vagus nerve. And it's a high tone dorsal aspect and it, it shuts the system down. But under that shutdown is all this intense fight flight energy. And it, it's, you know, there's so many analogies we could say it's like a car that has the gas on and the brake on. And, you know, if you've ever driven an automatic and your e-brake is on, it's like something doesn't feel right. The other way I look at it is like a hydroelectric dam. Like when you're holding all that water in a reservoir, there's, there's a lot of power in that, right? And then you let it out and it creates electricity. Like how crazy is that? But what happens in the system is we're not letting it out. We're holding it all in. And so that then backfires and that's where the disease the strain, the stress occurs. And then pending your genetic, this is where the genetics come in, pending your genetic predispositions to either mental or chronic illness or heart disease or whatever it might be, the system then finds the weakest link. And so that is a very like quick, (laughs) deep dive into why that ACE study showed what it showed is that these little people were under so much stress and trauma and adversity they knew they couldn't flee their abusive homes and neglect of, cause you can't. And even sometimes you do, you get put in foster care and it's just as worse. And that's a whole other disaster. And so, so you're holding all this stuff in, but you're also like, I can't, I can't leave. So I'm going to shut down and I'm going to hold it all in. And then another thing that occurs, Kate, I mentioned the fawn response a little while ago, because a lot of people think, how come you never talk about the fawn? It's like, well, the fawn response is a little more advanced. Fight, flight, freeze is just kind of basic biological go mode. But fawning, it it requires a little nuance. It's like, I'm going to make myself just a little prettier and you might like me, or I'm going to be this way and then they'll like me or a more interesting one that I've heard up recently through one of my teachers is children will fawn into an illness to get attention. And so they see that mom's getting all the attention because she's whatever, mentally unwell, has a chronic illness. And by some weird, I think it's just an energetic field thing. A little person can make themselves sick and, and put themselves into a diminished condition to be more meek and more unwell. And then they get the attention because they're not well. Whereas when they were fine, no one was paying attention to them. They were paying attention to the other, other siblings that were making trouble and whatever. And what's so interesting, and this might be a bit of a segue, but maybe not is I'm seeing a strange trend mainly on Instagram, but that's where I see it where moms are posting their sick children And they're trying to soothe them in their anxiety or panic. And it just, to me, is like, please stop that. Like, yeah, that is, you can't see my face, but I'm, I'm very perplexed. It's, it's, it's like, I, and I, and knowing what I know and having seen this before and a few times 
it's still the transmission of that mom. Sadly, moms, it's usually the moms that do this. You rarely see fathers doing this, but it's often the mother has her own still unsecure, insecure traumas, need for approval needs to be seen, which transverse transverse or sorry, transfers from her upbringing and not being connected to. And so now there's almost like this movie happening where there's this display of, look, I'm taking care of my sick child. And then the comments and the likes come. And then that gives that validation. It's a very weird thing I'm seeing. Which is almost, and you know, it's interesting with fawning and and correct me if I'm wrong. I've always viewed this as you have flight, fight, freeze as a response. And in a lot of ways, I think of fawning as a reaction. And and so you're in, you're in freeze and, you know, and from personal experience, mine often comes up as people pleasing that, you know, walking on eggshells, wanting to make everybody happy. So everything is okay. And, and that that is that type of fawning. And I think you bring up something really interesting, which is where social media is entering some of our broken nervous systems as, and, and, you know, within that, like, I think that when we're talking about that child and sort of creating illness there, there's so much wisdom. I mean, it's such a devastating story, but there also is this, like, there's wisdom. And I think it just shows how far our bodies will go, how far our subconscious will go to give us what we need in terms of the social engagement. And in some ways, there is this, this almost awe-inspiring aspect of that. And I think it speaks to how critical it is to our development that our, our bodies are able to go this far. But here we have social media, and I think that it really preys on some of the cracks in this broken nervous system. It's an interesting one because I enjoy aspects of it in ways that are obviously for my business and, and, and that kind of thing and connecting with people. But one of the sort of dead giveaways that I think I've come across is if, how do I say this? If we're needing to like fully unplug and there's nothing wrong with unplugging, but if there's like a compulsion and need, I have to get, I got to get off of this or I'm just getting off of this platform. It's just too much. It shows that there isn't a healthy balance between using these technologies. And so that's sort of like a dead giveaway that maybe there's a little excessive, we could call it addiction, an over-reliance. I think it's an addiction. And I know personally, I don't share a lot of private stuff, not because I don't go through stuff, but because it's just not how I choose to share my world. I think there's times when you can teach something based on experience you've gone through after the fact, but there's something very um, interesting to me about displaying all of the pain and, and, ick and snot and the the stuff that you're going through in that moment on a platform with strangers, essentially, because they are strangers for the most part, unless of course they're your close friends and it's just a private account. And then that's totally different, right? But there's something sacred about this process of healing the system and doing it really in the comfort of your own home with doors closed 
that allows the process to actually uncover, unravel, unfold, release in the way that it naturally would. But the moment you put that, I mean, it's quantum physics, right? The moment there's an observer, something shifts because then you as the person experiencing this are like, are they watching? Are they looking? Are they going to respond to the fact that I have this problem? And then it's like, okay, is that because this person is really meant to share the story and maybe that's the case, or are they looking for that validation, that touch that they never got when they were little, when they were sick. And my guess, Kate, is that a lot of what I see in this online world is people desperately looking for that connection to be validated that their bodies are in pain because Again, this brokenness is that we were not, for many of us, we weren't acknowledged when we were in real pain, when we were young, when we scraped our knee, when we were really sick with the flu, we were told, suck it up, go to, you know, if you're not bleeding out of your eyes, you got to get to work and do the things. So there's this interesting um, overriding that we were taught for many of us that I think is being seen in this social media world that seems quite safe. I can express this. I can get some dopamine hits because you know, the way that it works. Um, but I, I, of course this is just theory on my end, but I think there's something happening where it's, it's just, I'm saying this for those who might do that, just be careful, like be very careful about what you're exposing out to the world because energy is real. And, um, there's something quite nice when you can work with something on your own and process it or with a a spouse or a therapist or a friend and keep it intimate. Yeah. I think you're speaking to something too, you know, within the adverse childhood experiences, addiction is a really big piece of, of that, that your, your chances, your propensity towards addiction go up as that score is going to rise. And I really think that a lot of the social media addiction, and I do think it's an addiction and I even, I even have to check myself. And one of the things I've noticed in this, in, in doing this tune up with you is that nothing dissociates me like a scroll. (laughs) That's a quotable, Kate. I like that. (laughs) That I have lost sense of my environment around me. I have lost sense of my physical body in contact with, you know, the chair or the desk that I'm at. I have lost sense of the physical sensation of whether or not I have to go to the bathroom or my hunger or satiety signals. And, and so here is this thing that is really disconnecting us from our nervous system. And then you put in this piece. And I think, because I agree, I'm seeing a lot of this, that there is this, I want to be careful here, but this attachment to our own victimhood. And I know that I've had to work to shed that in my own and, and it still comes up, right? It's, it's not shed yet and still comes up in my own work. But this, you, you mentioned earlier, identifying with diagnoses. And, and this is something I think is, is quietly insidious that when we become a warrior of our chronic illness, that all of a sudden that becomes embedded in our identity and we attach into it and whatever it gives us and whatever it gives our nervous system. And it becomes harder to disentangle that chronic illness from our bodies. 
You got it, lady. It's um, one of the things that Peter Levine, the founder of Somatic Experiencing, who I've had the pleasure of studying with and through, he said a while ago in one of our classes that language is actually very important because of the fact that we're humans and we have those language centers. So the somatic work is important. The nervous system work is important, the movement work, but how we frame the meaning, as you mentioned a little while ago, the difference between I have X, Y, Z is very different than I live with X, Y, Z. The difference between I'm an idiot and stupid versus I have the thought right now that I'm stupid. And I actually learned that first part a bit more um, at the beginning of my career in my Feldenkrais training, because a big portion of the Feldenkrais work um, was devoted to working with kiddos with cerebral palsy and different forms of movement disorders that they were born with or insulted during childbirth, which is the case usually with CP. And the mothers that saw their children as not having CP, but living with it, but they were still their child made such a difference. Yes. And when we're an adult moving through a diagnosis or, you know, we know darn well, there's something wrong with our gut because we can't poop properly or we can't digest food. It is hard to not attach to that. And it takes work. And I'm not, you know, because of my experiences with um, my skin, which is a whole other story, but while, you know, I mean, you can see me, my skin is clear, but if I get a little something pop up, I watch myself cascade. It's way better now, way better because I've healed. It's like, it's going to heal. But before it was like this terror that I would be back into like two years of agony. And it's actually one of the reasons why to speak personally, I haven't shared a lot of that. I don't use that as a selling feature because I don't want someone to go into my work because I've healed something because I'm still healing stuff. It's never going to (laughs) end. You know, I have a bruise that's healing right now. There's always things that are going to be healing. I want them to take charge of the information and the work for themselves. And I got to say, it's a bit tough Cause like, trust me, if I had a crazy story that I would share that, you know, just people would attach to, it would be that much easier to be like, Oh, she figured all this stuff out. Tell me exactly what to do, but I can't. Cause how I healed my skin is actually not the nervous system work. Oddly, it was a whole other series of things that were for me personally, but maybe for another person, they might be able to heal their skin through the nervous system. Is that making sense? It is. And I think there are a couple of things I hear. And number one is we talked about how there are all of these different nervous system responses, all of these different types out there in the world. You know, the person that feels safe in the club and the person that feels safe at home, right? Just to, to pick on that example. And that healing journey is going to be radically different for everyone that embarks on it. And, and we share this, that I don't, I don't talk, I talk a little bit here and there, but I don't talk a lot about my chronic illness journey because it's mine and it is a, it's personal. And, and I think that there are a lot of energetics around that. And I also think that right now, 
and I really appreciate you for this. We look for, we look for gurus uh, is what I'm going to say. We look for gurus and we look for, well, this person healed this thing by this. And so I'm going to do that too. When really, I think that as practitioners, there's a desire to help people tap into their own innate ability to heal and not to find that through mimicry or through looking for a guru or through looking for a quick fix, which again, this act of, of tapping into our plasticity to heal the nervous system, I view that as my life's work. It's not work I'm doing right now. It's work that I'm always going to be fine tuning and adjusting and things will come up. Trauma will continue to happen that I will have to, again, go back and rebalance and adjust this thing and go into a freeze response and come out of a freeze response and begin to adjust that again. And, and so I think what you're leaving space for is plasticity. And individuality. Individuality is essential because it would be really easy to turn that guru hat on. And that's why it happens so easily. And it's, that is a fine balance too, because I mean, as cliche as this sounds, each person needs to be their own guru. You know, we've heard that phrase before, but it's true. You're your, you're your best experiment. And what you said earlier about the keenness, the curiosity, and that belief that you deserve, that is a big one in our society. Because I think one of the reasons why we do flock to the guru or the, the, the man on the mountain or the woman on the mountain, or whatever you want to call it, is because, and this is where it's so tough is if we didn't, again, I'm making an assumption. If we didn't get that yummy connection from our mother or another primary caregiver, when we were young, we missed out in that ecstasy of utter safety of, of falling asleep on the bare skin of your mom as a one week old and just melting into utter safety and connection and having her ease and her hair and her smell and the, the, all the little, like that is an ecstatic experience. And that's, what's forming that safety. And I remember one of my uh, instructors, I think it was Stephen Hoskinson who taught me the SC modules at the beginning. He's, he kind of made a connection with people in the 60s, 70s, really going into the psychedelic free love. It was the same kids that had medicalized births who, when they came out of mama, were just put in a separate room, swaddled and didn't have that ecstatic connection. And so they're searching for that ecstasy, literally. Right? Yes. Literally. And, yes. literally. and so so I get why there's that desire to connect. And I also am aware for my followers that might be hearing this. I know that they put on my videos in the background and not listen to them for, but they're just, my voice helps them and that's okay. Right. But I'm also like, and, and what can you do? How can you start to take this on your own? Cause you're right. That newborn baby has to have that mother. But over time, a good mother figures out how to completely detach from that little one so they can do their own thing and then never need mama 
really ever again. But we look at these dynamics and these dramas and families, like human families, it's just so crazy. It's like that's happening because we never had that connection and that solidity to literally leave the flock and never come back home. And so what I'm hearing is this desire for a guru is this desire to connect with an outside force with that feels like it's giving you this ecstatic connection of safety when, and, and again, if I'm wrong, you have to become that connection of safety for yourself and to be able to cultivate safety connection internally. And, and I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to belittle it because it's, it's damn hard. It's fucking hard. And I think, you know, I can hear someone right now thinking, well, don't you need to heal in commute in, um, relationship. And that's the thing that you hear a lot in the attachment worlds is you have to heal in relationship. We need community. And that is accurate. And there is this distinction. If our primary relationship as an infant was unsafe, if our primary caregiver was unsafe, if our community, i.e. our home life was unsafe, I am not going to tell one of my students or clients, I need you to go join a community to heal. (laughs) That's the last thing I want them to do. I need you to find a partner to heal. No. Right. And I think there's this, there's this confusion. It's like, oh, people keep saying I have to be in, in relationship to heal, but I'm single and I'm terrified of people, how I'm never going to get better. I'm never going to get better. And the messaging is not that cut and dry because it depends on your initial early traumas. Right. And so what if your early trauma was that mama wasn't safe, household wasn't safe, or what if mama was safe, household was safe, but you were put in a hospital because you had a spinal defect that needed a surgery. That's a totally different kind of energy you have to go into when you do this work. And I think, you know, as you said, the work is simple, but then this is where the theory is important. You need to understand that again, we're not the piglets and we're not the the calves. Like we're really complex creatures, but it can be simple when we understand this diversity that we've been brought into. And let me, yeah. And let, let me say this about the sim- simplicity aspect. The the core concept is simple. The implementation and the unpacking of that onto a complex human is not simple. Very good. Very well put. But I think that one of the reasons that I'm, I'm really enchanted with this 21 day nervous system tune up is because I understand why I'm doing it. I have this simple action that I can begin to apply as a complex human. And since I have some understanding of the foundational, physiological, biological, psychological aspects of it, I can begin to understand how that, that simple how is going to interact with the very complex me. Yes. And I can begin to see my own behaviors arise. Yes. And I have a simple tool that I can begin to learn to apply as a complex individual. Well said. And, and I've really seen that and, and just these simple acts of noticing, you know, a couple of the biggest things that I've noticed, I'm not a big overeater, but I often eat until I'm just, just a little bit too full. Yep. Sure. And, and 
some of that has gone away. And some of this just noticing, right, that that scroll dissociation. And wait, well, where am I in my environment? And what am I in contact with? And how can I, how can I come back? And noticing too, how often I have a very narrow focus that I'm not experiencing my environment and orienting myself within that space. And I'll notice, oh, I haven't, I haven't taken a deep breath and I haven't connected to where I am in the room and where I am in the world. And so I really think that, and I really appreciate you for not building this out, out of, a out of a guru space, but building this with just, I mean, just this gorgeous array of education and these tools that are simple and implementable for the vast array of complex human beings that are out there and all the different ways in which our nervous systems get set, which is as variable as I think we are. And so what a beautiful thing to not say this is a way to heal eczema or lupus or this and that, but this is a practice for everyone and the variety of ways that our nervous systems get to get set to begin to find our way back home to ourselves. Yes. And yes, beautifully said. Thank you. The, this is the simplicity. And I know I've already touched on this, but just to kind of reiterate that simplicity is exactly what we, I could say should have had, but maybe didn't get when we were young. And I think, think from my experience talking to students and such as, as you've experienced Kate is when you can really accept the simplicity. Cause I can tell you what can often occur. And I'll speak to this is someone will do these simple things, but because they're still in quite a large shutdown and freeze and maybe they haven't done the degree of work that I know I can tell you have done before this, they might go, this is not doing anything. I'm not feeling a difference. And that's a tough one because I know now enough that it will make a difference, but there needs to be a sticking to it. And, you know, it's almost like restructuring your body. You're not going to see a change necessarily in the first week or even the first month, especially if you're recovering something like, um, a broken, you know, you've had a a fracture and you've lost all your muscle tissue, you know, and you're weak and you used to be able to hop and run. And now you, you're afraid to even go downstairs, you know, and you do your physio, you do your rehab. This is a personal experience of mine. And you're just like, Oh, it's not changing, but you just have to keep doing it. And of course, nurturing yourself and, and then eventually the layers do build. And then one day you realize you're going down the stairs and you're not even worried. And I, I just say that to those who do choose to go down this path and learn from me is, is you got to give it time. And I have heard from many folk who will admit I didn't see any changes in the first 21 days or the first month. And I just figured nothing was going to happen. But then I remembered some of the basics and they kind of stuck in my mind 
And then slowly I started to realize that things were shifting, but that is the cool thing with the human brain is that we do have mem- we have these memories that stick with us and you have to be keen with it. But that, that is, that is one of the tougher ones is because we have been so elegant <laughs> at storing our stressors and being in this functional freeze that for so many people, they have no idea how functionally they've been frozen. Yes. Right. And I, I think you said something really important too in there, which is we're not going to unwind 30, 40, 50 years of habits, trauma issues in our tissues in 21 days. It's going to take longer. And I, I was recently speaking with somebody, I'm doing a little bit of work on my hip and we were talking about how it takes six weeks to build a muscle, but it takes almost 260 days to build a tendon. Interesting. And so it takes the better part of a year to build a tendon, but a muscle, the belly of that muscle, the belly of your bicep is going to build with relative speed. And I think a lot of times it takes time to build some of these stronger connection points within our, our sort of neuroplasticity that, that it takes time and it takes repetition, especially when it's taken a lot of time to do that. And the other thing that I want to add as somebody who spent a lot of time healing is it's not linear. No, you'll (laughs) see, you'll see yourself make progress and then you'll slide, you'll slide back and then you'll, maybe it takes some time. Maybe it doesn't, you'll get out of it and you'll make more progress and something will happen. Maybe you'll slide back a different way. I'll slide yeah. back this way. And, and so I think that that's an important aspect too. Not only does it take time, but it's not linear. It's not just going up a mountain that there are little valleys and there are peaks and, and you're just slowly making your way up. And I think that that can feel discouraging, especially when you have chronic illness and you fear getting stuck in that space again. And so you meet a freeze response and you're like, oh my gosh, is this going to last for six months? Like last time. Yeah. You could, yeah. The, the, the interesting thing that you said there, and of course this is under the guise that a person is continuing to work on themselves and nurture, and they're not putting themselves into more toxic situations. Often a person might think that they've relapsed because they're feeling more panic or they're feeling more what we would call anxiety they might think that they're going backwards because they're feeling themselves dive into a deep shutdown. But often what's occurring again, granted that this person is nurturing themselves and they're moving forward in other ways is the system now has the capacity to feel these intense, big survival responses that they didn't have when they were say five or six or 10 or 20 or even 45. And now they're 50 and they've built up this capacity to be with hunger and rest needs for rest and tired and, and emotions and all the sensations that they're noticing. And that is in a strange way, giving, I don't even think it's just the nervous system. I think it's the entire organism. It's giving the entire organism the cue. Whoa, she's, she's got more room. Yeah. He's more space. More, we're going to give you a, a whammy today. <laughs> you know, like We're going to, we're going to, we're going to bring up the thing that you have not had the capacity to feel or be with or re-experience 
because you didn't have the capacity. It would be like, I use this analogy often. It'd be like putting someone on the top of Everest or even base camp who has never like ran a mile and has no cardiovascular fitness. You can't do that. It wouldn't work. It's the same with this stuff. Like that capacity building actually offers you the ability to feel the things that you had to push away. And we've been so misinformed around that, that and even I, I'm trying to always tell my students like, this isn't bad. This is good. It's like, what, what I'm, I'm seeing that awful event. I'm like, yeah, but look, you're feeling your body. You're staying connected to the ground. You're saying no, or you're terrified and you're feeling the terror rather than shutting it down. That's good. You know? And so it, it also can sometimes feel like backwards when really actually it's the opposite of backwards. I love that. I think I, I needed that reframe. And I think that that's a really important aspect of how we look at healing that sometimes this comes through and and we're given more to heal because we have the capacity to hold it and it wants to work itself out and i think that's the like it wants to come up and out <laughs> out of our tissues out of our out of our minds so that we can process that so that we can find new dimensions of ourselves and new dimensions and ways of being 100% I think I think that's beautiful and I I know we're we're just coming up on time here and so I think we've we've talked about and and I'll share a little bit more probably in the intro about my experience with the 21 day nervous system tune up and then we also have your smart body smart mind coming up here in September which only comes around once a year and is just such a beautiful opportunity to do a very deep dive into your work it is definitely a deep dive. It is something that I have owned a bit more strongly this year, interestingly enough. And I think it's because we started this work online. It was like in 2014, 13. And then the first real sort of curriculum was set in, I think, 2015, 16. I'm losing track of years, but that's a chunk of time. And I just spoke with one of um, the Smart Body, Smart Mind members who first ever joined before it was even Smart Body, Smart Mind. And it was six years that we, when we first chatted. And it's like seeing this individual, David is his name, he's online with me. So you know, seeing him and looking at his image from 2016, Kate, to now, and I just like, wow, you know, and the regulation the connection, the purpose. And someone might say, wow, that's a long time. It's like, yeah, it is a long time, but it's also, um, during that time there were improvements, you know, things were happening. So the, the, to, to on it, to be honest, I'm still a little in awe in some ways of how it works so well when most of the students that have gone through, I've a never met, don't know their names and I'm trusting them. I'm trusting them to do the work and follow through and show up and ask questions when they need to ask questions. And it's just, it's a really cool curriculum that I, I can honestly say there isn't anything like it in the world. I can, I mean, I can tell you that as somebody who has done 
a lot of different modalities of therapy and work for trauma that it is singular in its existence. And I have never, it really speaks to the way that I learn. And I think that it speaks to the way a lot of us learn. Right. And I'll say it again. It gives you the the why and the foundational understanding and then the how. I'll say one more thing to that about the learning. What I think has happened to the human, this, this element of us being broke, you know, being broken. I say that with humor, um, is a lot of our troubles with healing come down to how we were taught how to learn. Mm. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a feeling I'm a little older than you, but we probably went through a a similar educational system, K to 12, you know, tests, homework assignments, they're graded. If you get a D, you're shit out of luck, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I opted out at a young age. I, 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 I skipped some things, but, uh, but my, my early years were yes. And, you know, post-secondary education is a little different. And I think that's why I loved what I learned after high school because they do offer you help. You know, if you can't figure out and it's like, you get help, you get a TA, you go to the lab and da, 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 da. But that early uh, elementary school, grade school kind of learning, holy cow, what a way to screw up a really intelligent little being. And there are, there were some people that fit that mold, but a tiny percentage well, something that I talked about, I don't know if you're familiar with Will Roosh's work on, no. um, I'll, I'll forward him to you, but we did a podcast together and he's a high school teacher and has taught in a variety of different institutions. And I think one of the issues is that in, in that learning model, we teach you what to think, not right. how to think. Right. That's, that's bang on. My brain goes to a few areas when you say that. Um, if I keep it in the context of the nervous system and healing, that I think is the other factor as a kid who did not do well in elementary school, who was deemed learning disabled. They thought I was deaf and I wasn't because I just couldn't get it. I just couldn't <laughs> figure things out. I, I really wanted to figure out how to teach such that we would take away that structure, but there still is structure because there has to be some structure. But one of the things that I have found is, 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 is hard for our students to figure out is that it really is okay to go at your own pace. And it really is okay if you screw up. And I say that with air quotes and you only, and you forget to do something for five days that's not bad, but I mean, I, I say, please come back to it. But if you only do, and this is what's so great with online learning five minutes of a 20 minute lesson, that's okay. Just like if you were a little kid trying to learn your times tables, why would you keep screaming at the kid when they're, they're done? You wouldn't, but that's what we did to kids when they were young. And then they were just in stress mode and then nothing gets learned. So there's this really interesting rewiring that happens, Kate, when finally, cause I'm like a broken record. I'm like, just remember, I say this at the start of each call in smart body, smart mind. I get my husband to remind this when he's doing the Q and A's. 
the moderators who are answering questions are always saying, and I remember talking to a student and she said to me years after, I finally listened to what you were saying about going at my own pace. <laughs> Cause I pushed through the first time and I did too much and I fried my system and it took me two or three rounds where I finally started to listen and go at my own pace. And I think I had more discovery when I did that than when I pushed through. And, and that is showing also to me how critical it is for us to reteach people how to learn. And I think that's why a lot of other, one could say one of the reasons why other therapies and, and courses aren't working for people is it's like a, a one and done, like get through it. And there's a lot of raw, raw and, and motivation and set your goals. And I actually start on the first call saying to people, I don't want you to be excited about any of this. I, I'm like, and, and I, and I kind of put that as a humor, like comedy. I'm like, I'm serious because if you're really excited and you're, you got your pens and you got all your post-it notes and everything's organized you can't keep up that level of perfection for the rest of your, you're gonna, it's gonna slip. And then if you're trained from our school system, when it slips, you're going to go into shame. I suck. I failed. I got an F and then I drop out of school <laughs> as you just point to yourself. I, I just, yeah. Yep. 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 You, you must know exactly how I learn. And it is, it's <laughs> that there's the cycle. It is, it is expectations, not meeting them. Perfectionism, shame, freeze avoidance. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. And it's like, I just call that out now at the start, you know, cause I know that most people have had that upbringing and some stuck it out in school and, and, and did it and others didn't, but it's actually, I think one of the biggest reasons why so many humans are struggling because of that. Um, and I just wish we can get away from that. This whole, you know, the goals, it's the goals are interesting. I get, I get where it comes from, but when it comes to healing the human system, we got to let that stuff go. Yes, we absolutely do have to let that stuff go. And I I think that you're pointing to yet another space where trauma has perpetuated, which is inside the school system and inside how we learn. And so for you to begin to unwind, to first of all, to connect the dots that how we learn and how we learn to tune up and readjust our nervous systems, that the how we learn part is important too, because we all have a lot of trauma or a lot of habits that don't serve us or a lot of perfectionism that comes up within that and and can act as a saboteur in this process. And so I think that that is so beautiful and such a beautiful reminder to be gentle. Yeah. To not get caught in having you can't do this being human. Perfect. It's not possible. Mm -mm. No, the only time I would say perfection might be important is like when a surgeon is operating, <laughs> right? I always like to add the, the exception because yeah, I do I think that, you know, it's like, I want the engineers to be really good at planning that bridge that I'm going to drive over. So it's like, there's certain elements where, you know, to play devil's advocate, we actually do want someone to have straight A's <laughs> to, to, you know, and then there's this whole other thing. 
you know, and really our healing is quite creative. And we know that because of people who have healed things that were deemed never possible to heal. And the medical establishment calls them miracles. And to me, they're just exactly what the system is meant to do when we kind of get out of the way and give it what it needs. And so that's what we see. Like, that's what we're seeing um, in the students that go through who, who really take it upon themselves to make this a lifestyle. Like they're doing stuff that has been deemed impossible. And that's pretty cool. That is amazing. And what an incredible program. And I just, I can't recommend it enough. We'll have links to all of these things. And thank you. Thank you for rejoining me so that we could talk about this very important topic. And I hope that people can take away just what's possible. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Kate. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.